Welcome to Reinventing Professionals, a podcast hosted by industry analyst Ari Kaplan, which shares ideas, guidance, and perspectives from market leaders shaping the next generation of legal and professional services. This is Ari Kaplan, and I'm speaking today with Jerry Ting, the CEO and co-founder of Evasort, an artificial intelligence-powered contract analysis system. Hi, Jerry. How are you? Hey, Ari. I'm good. Thanks for having me. It's a privilege. So tell us about the genesis of Evasort and its recent $15 million investment. So I started Evasort out of Harvard Law School, where I was volunteering to help entrepreneurs start companies. But when I was in law school, I was excited to work with clients, set up the possibility of working in a law firm and being able to service customers. But what I realized is that I actually had a bigger passion for technology. And so built Eversort out of Harvard Law. Eversort uses artificial intelligence to basically be able to read contracts and be able to tell you what are the key legal clauses, where are the key risks, and he's able to pull out information like key dates, who the contract is with, how much is it worth, things of that nature that are traditionally done by people, but more and more are being automated. And so you mentioned the recent fundraising round. It was quite exciting for us. We actually raised two rounds of funding in 2019. We raised a $4.5 million seed round, and then uh, at the end of 2019, just a few weeks ago, we announced a $15 million round that was led by Microsoft Ventures, which is M12, and also by Vertex Ventures, which is a large conglomerate out of Tamasek that does investing here in the U.S. And so quite excited to be able to be a part of the Microsoft family and be able to further invest into building out Eversor for the mainstream customers. Congratulations. You know, what advice would you give to other legal tech entrepreneurs who are seeking investors in 2020? I think the investing community has significantly changed between beginning of 2018 and end of 2017 when we first went out to raise our first round of funding and now. Back in 2017, 2018, a lot of investors did not believe that lawyers would actually use technology, nonetheless, artificial intelligence-based technologies. And so when we were out there back then, we had to do a lot of educating. The tables have completely changed, if you will. So now when we went out to fundraise, it was actually very, very specific questions, very, very educated investors. And so part of that is driven by the fact that there's actually several unicorns that are now legal tech companies, right? There's Isertis, which is now a billion-dollar company, and there's also companies in e-discovery like Disco that's raised hundreds of millions of dollars. And so because of the success of legal technologies in the last, call it five years, the investing community is now very aware and very keen to understand more about legal tech. And so when you're going out and fundraising, there's a difference between people being aware of legal tech as a category versus knowing what lawyers actually do. And so just a piece of advice is don't assume that investors, just because they know the names of the other players, sometimes they don't even know the difference between e-discovery versus contract analytics versus matter management, right? And so for us as legal tech professionals, those things are table stakes to understand, but really be able to communicate complicated concepts that may be processed and legal driven be able to communicate that in a business perspective. What's the ROI? What's the business case? Why is this going to be a billion dollar company? How do you think investors should evaluate early stage pre-revenue companies in legal? I think legal is a category that investors are still learning how to properly evaluate. And I think that podcasts like these are helpful for helping educate the VC community. And so One of the things that I will look at is what's the total addressable market? What's the TAM? 
there's actually a lot of companies in my analysis of legal tech when I was starting Eversort that were companies that were focused on a very specific problem. And these companies were quite profitable, but those were not usually VC-backed companies. And the reason for that is they were more focused on matter management, a specific operation inside of a law firm. It's more focused on a specific type of use case. And so what's the TAM? What's the total addressable market? Can this thing with the right amount of funding actually grow to become you know, a public company? Right? That's a really important part of investing in legal tech is understanding the TAM. Another thing is, what is the value that that product is providing? Is a mission critical to legal teams and legal ops teams? Or is it something that's more of a nice to have? And I think that that's actually one of those things where as a legal tech industry, we're still defining our identity, but what's the mission criticality of the product? And then the final thing is the team. Just because someone's been a lawyer before, doesn't mean that they're good at running a legal tech company. And so can that person who's starting a company be able to recruit the right go-to-market team, the right product team, the right engineering team? And so just to summarize, how big is TAM? What's the mission criticality of the product? And then can the team actually deliver on that vision? You mentioned the distinction in verticals. How does a legal tech startup differ from a more traditional Silicon Valley venture? It's actually interesting because I'm actually from the Bay Area and then I went to law school in Boston. And when I first learned about legal tech startups, it really surprised me, caught me off guard because it was quite different than what I was used to here in Silicon Valley. A lot of the legal tech startups that are raising money today, even if it's the first round of funding and they're calling it a series A, they've been around for 10 years or so. And so in the Bay Area, that's not what we call a startup. Sometimes 10 years is long enough for a company to go public. And so for us here in the Bay Area, when we look at legal tech companies, it's actually quite interesting to see, okay, these are actually established businesses that have been around for some time. How do we innovate and how do we as a group differentiate our product offerings? Because there's actually a lot of players that have been quite established in the space already. You mentioned developing Evisort as a law student. How do you recommend that those in law school contemplate careers in legal tech? I think it's actually a fascinating question because when I was in law school, I felt a lot of pressure to stay on the law firm path, either the law firm path or clerkship or something pro bono. And so legal tech wasn't even considered as a career option, if you will. I think only recently has that emerged as a career option. And so I think my advice to law students is technology is interesting, but how does it impact lawyers? And I think my advice to them would be understand how law gets actually practiced, not just the theoretical constructs of what is contracts, but how does a lawyer actually review a contract? And I think for a law student to understand how legal practice actually happens, that gives them the framework they need to understand, hey, this technology sounds interesting, but is it actually going to do something that helps the day-to-day of a lawyer? I think one thing that I've seen from law students recently that has really impressed me is they're actually quite proactive. And so I have a lot of law students who are actually reaching out to me on LinkedIn. They applied to our website for internships. And this is a recent trend. And I think that certain law students with a certain frame of mind, by being proactive, can actually network their way into legal tech startups because we are also eager to get law students. We get a lot of MBA applications, but when I see somebody who's in law but also has a passion for technology, that's very exciting for me as a hiring manager. So is your advice for students to embrace both the study of law 
and then combine that with an understanding of the actual application of sort of the nuances of practice, the practical nature of being a lawyer? That's exactly right. So I'll give an example. When we were studying Eversort, we went to a contracts professor and we asked him for advice. So we went to office hours and we said, hey, we think lawyers are spending a lot of time reviewing contracts. Can you give us some advice on where we should focus our initial market research? And he came back and said, you should understand and build an AI that can tell me if a contract has consideration. That's never going to happen in legal practice. Most contracts, if it doesn't have consideration, there's like not really a contract, right? And so that kind of academic thinking, although helpful for law students in a academic environment, doesn't do much at all in terms of understanding how legal tech works. So I think for law students, they should reach out to alumni who are practicing either in law firms or in-house or has transitioned to the business side and then try to understand what do these professionals do on a day-to-day basis instead of what they do in theory. So contract analytics is a popular area for software solutions. How should hopeful entrepreneurs carve out their niche? Contract analytics is actually a new field compared to e-discovery, but it's become quite interesting over the last couple of years. I think there's still some green grass left in our industry. And so advice to entrepreneurs looking at the industry is, this is one of the things that has made Eversor very successful. When you build a technology and somebody has to change what they do, i.e. they had to change their behavior, learn something new, change how they've been doing something that they've been probably doing for some couple of years. That's a harder technology to build, and it's a harder technology to sell, and it's a harder technology to adopt. And so focusing on building things that can add value without changing how people do their work, I think that is one of the things that has made us easy to adopt and easy to buy from an IT perspective. Now, there are a couple of things to understand about contract analytics. There are companies like us who focus on in-house, and there's companies that focus on working with law firms. That's usually a pretty big difference. And so understanding that there's two different fields inside of contract analytics, that's a starting basis. And then going further, if you're going in-house, there's things you do before you sign a contract, and then there's things you do after you sign a contract. Typically, those have been different industries as well. And so by understanding in-house versus law firm, pre-signature versus post-signature, a new entrepreneur can begin to understand how does contract analytics work as an industry. And then focusing on low change management products, I think is a really good way to get going. You are opening a Montreal office. How do you know when it's time to expand and where it makes the most sense to move? So we've doubled our headcount every quarter for the last four quarters. (laughs) And so it's just becoming, our smaller office has now become a bigger office. And for us, the question becomes, incrementally, if we hire more people in the Bay Area, what's the value of that versus hiring somebody in the field to be close to the customers or somewhere in Montreal, where Montreal has actually been called the Boston of Canada because there's so many top universities, research universities within 10 miles of each other. And so for us, it was about a strategic decision to say, hey, Montreal is becoming an AI research center and we're able to go out there and be competitive in recruiting in a cost-effective manner. And it's also drawn companies like Google and Facebook and Airbnb to go out to Montreal. We want to be a part of that conversation as one of the top tech companies. And so that's why we chose Montreal. But our headquarters is always going to be in the Bay Area, and we're hiring in both offices. How do you see legal tech evolving this year? Legal tech traditionally has been something only reserved for lawyers, if you will. I expect that to change dramatically in the next year. 
And the reason for that is we're already seeing that. As an example, Microsoft co-led our Series A round and they're actually joining our board as an observer. And the idea is that almost every lawyer in America uses Microsoft, but not just lawyers. The question when Microsoft goes out to sell is not, is this enterprise already a customer? Most enterprises are already a customer of Microsoft. It's how do we make that customer go deeper with Microsoft? And so for us to be a part of that conversation, when we're going out to Fortune 500 companies, it's not just lawyers who are using us, but procurement teams, finance teams, accounting teams, customer success and sales operations. I think everyone in a company that touches contracts could benefit from contract analytics, but usually that change is driven by an enterprising lawyer who's willing to look at new technologies and bring that technology to their colleagues. This is Ari Kaplan speaking with Jerry Ting, the CEO and co-founder of Evisort, an AI-powered contract analysis system. Jerry, thanks so much. Thank you, Ari. Thank you for listening to the Reinventing Professionals podcast. Visit ReinventingProfessionals.com or AriKaplanAdvisors.com to learn more.